Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy blessings of the week past. We thank thee that day by day thou dost surround us with thy grace and mercy. Thou dost give us showers of blessings. And so, our Father, in gratitude, in joy, and in thanksgiving, we come into thy presence to praise thee as we ought, to delight ourselves in thy word, and to rejoice in thy service. Strengthen us by thy word and by thy spirit, that we may do that which is pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture lesson is from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verses 9 through 15, and our subject, forgiveness. Matthew 6, 9 through 15, and our subject, forgiveness. After this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We have in recent weeks considered the significance of the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, our Savior said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The reference was to the Jubilee of God. We saw also the significance of the forgiveness of sin, what it means to be the forgiver and the forgiven. This morning our concern is with forgiveness as such. And a very important word here used, trespasses. When our Lord uses that word, trespasses, as we shall see, in a sense he throws a curveball at all of us. Guaranteed to get by our self-righteousness and strike us out. It's a very important word for us to understand. In paganism and in modern humanism, forgiveness is simply an emotional thing. It's an emotional change of mind. It is not related to law. The terms of forgiveness in non-Christian religions are always determined by man, not by God. Forgiveness and the refusal to forgive are alike lawless in the modern world. 
But in all sin, it is God who is primarily offended. And forgiveness must be granted or withheld in terms of God and his law. Biblically speaking, there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, the word forgiveness can mean cancellation of charges and debts because satisfaction has been rendered, or charges dropped because satisfaction has been rendered. If you owe someone money, when you pay off the debt, the debt is canceled. It is nullified by your payment, so there is no longer a charge, a note against you. If there are charges against you in court and you render satisfaction, the charges are nullified. The other meaning of forgiveness is the temporary suspension or deferment of the charges or occasionally of the sentence. We have one such usage in the Bible. When our Father was appealed to by our Lord from the cross, Father, forgive them. Defer the charges for the time being, for they know not what they do. Moreover, forgiveness is of two kinds. There is theological forgiveness the forgiveness by God of our sins. Then there is civil forgiveness, that which belongs in human relationships. Now, civil forgiveness can be extended to people to whom no theological forgiveness is extended. Thus, in terms of biblical law, as we have seen before, if a man steals a hundred dollars, he is required to restore the hundred dollars plus another hundred as a fine. The restitution can be, as we have seen, up to fourfold or fivefold. When that restitution is made, there is civil forgiveness. The charges are dropped. In terms of biblical law, the man is a citizen in good standing. Now, theological forgiveness is where, of course, our Lord forgives us our sins. The two are related. For there to be theological forgiveness, there must be civil forgiveness or restitution. This, of course, presented a very serious problem for the early church, and it should for the church today. And it's a sign of the church's delinquency that it does not. Because, of course, in the early church there were people who had committed offenses which, according to civil law, required restitution and or death. And the state, being degenerate, Rome, was not requiring those penalties. The church, therefore, had to impose penalties. Thus, in the early church, we have it from uh, decisions of various church councils, for example, the uh, 
one council in the year 300, which went into a great many such decisions. A woman who secured an abortion, could on repentance indeed be regarded again as a Christian and be assured of God's salvation, but she could not, to her dying day, partake of communion. She was judicially dead. She could come and worship. She could be considered a Christian sister, a friend, but she was dead in the sight of the church in that while the state had not sentenced her for murder, the sentence by the church indicated that she had committed a capital offense. And therefore, she had to be separated from the communion to indicate that while she was indeed saved by her repentance, she was not one of the living in the eyes of the church. This was the kind of thing the church did to make clear that while the state was delinquent, the church could not be. We have seen that there are two meanings to the word forgiveness, cancellation of charges or debts because satisfaction has been rendered, or charges deferred for the time being. There is theological and civil forgiveness. We must then recognize that forgiveness in the full sense of the word is a key to God's order, both religious and civil. There can be no social order without a healthy view of forgiveness. And when the biblical idea of forgiveness begins to depart, a society is in considerable confusion. It is very interesting that in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, a very liberal and modernistic work, one writer gives full recognition of the meaning of forgiveness. Cronbeck writes, and I quote, Forgiveness is the removal of the barriers between God and man. Sin is covered, expiated, it is sent away, removed, wiped out. God has cast it behind his back or into the depths of the sea. Forgiveness renews fellowship with God, who is the source of all holiness and light. His mercy and favor replace his wrath and judgment, so that the entire environment of human life has new possibilities. The created world is sanctified to man again and new relationships become possible in community and family. Terror of conscience and dread of judgment give way to peace. Man's soul is healed, the powers of his personality restored and strengthened." Unquote. Kronbeck then points out that there are three aspects to this forgiveness. There is the sovereign grace of God, first of all, who is not obliged to forgive, but does. There is second, sacrifice. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, and then the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And third, there is our repentance. Forgiveness is thus a legal fact. In forgiveness, men realize the charges against them, and they assent to that charge. 
tragic fact is today that not only do we not have a healthy perspective on forgiveness, but that the question has been turned upside down. For the past 75 to 100 years, as humanistic man has phrased the issue of forgiveness, it has not been, does God forgive man and how? But does man forgive God? And this has been stated over and over again. William Archer, a prominent literary critic, dramatic critic, declared during World War I that it was impossible in view of such horrors as the war for man ever to forgive God. He had nothing to say about the sin of man. Thomas Hardy, who lived about the same time and earlier, spent his life writing novels which were designed to prove that God could not be forgiven, that God loaded the dice, stacked the deck against man. It is interesting that in my day a required reading in all high schools was Hardy's book, Test of the Durberville. No doubt many of you read it. Like other hardy things, it's been made into a movie again and again. The whole thesis of Tess of the Durbervilles is that here is a poor, innocent girl. And everything in the universe, precisely because she is innocent, is designed to subvert and destroy her. In his poetry, Hardy made to the point all the more emphatic. He made it clear that the universe was stupid and senseless. And that if God existed, he was most certainly an idiot. And he put it in stronger language than that. And the one sure thing was that man could not forgive whatever God might be. The whole idea, of course, in humanism is that man is moral and God is immoral. And moral man, filled with a passion of righteousness, confronts God and condemns him. Hardy could not forgive God. He wanted no part of a God who made it possible for him to suffer. It is interesting to me, incidentally, I have a book in my library. I don't know where it is since I moved, but one of these days I'll encounter it, which I ran across some years when I was shopping for the foundation, buying a library. And there was an autographed copy of a very devout evangelical book of devotion, autographed by Hardy, his library. But he'd autographed it to make it clear to anyone who inspected his library when he died that it wasn't his idea to buy it, but it was his wife. So he didn't want anyone to think that he was sneaking around to God after telling everyone that he couldn't forgive God. What humanists like Hardy say is that man is the offended one who needs to forgive rather than to be forgiven and they will not forgive God. But 
But of course it is God who is the offended one. He forgives and judges man. There are limits to that forgiveness, and we are called upon as Christians to recognize God's limit. Turning again to Kronbeck, because here is a modernist who's been very honest in his interpretation of Scripture. Kronbeck writes, and I quote, that Jesus understood his work as the act of God is shown also by his word. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Mark 3, 30, 29. The words are his response to the scribes who asserted that his exorcism of demons was a manifestation of satanic power. The sin is unforgivable, not because it is too shocking, Your Highness, for God to forgive, that because it labels as diabolical the deeds by which God acts in his anointed servant. This is a perilous misuse of theology in the name of piety to reject the approach of the merciful God. Unquote. Scripture makes it emphatic. There are limitations to prayer and to forgiveness. Thus, in one of the great declarations of the power of prayer, St. John also defines its limits. And this is the confidence that we have in him if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for that for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, prayer and forgiveness have identical boundaries, and this is why they are closely linked here. God, we are assured, answers prayer. The prayer condition is that we pray according to his will. If a fellow believer sin, the Christian must ask, that is, it is his duty to pray for his restoration. The word there in the Greek is mandatory. He must pray, but he shall not pray, again mandatory, if it is a sin unto death, if the man has deliberately subverted it all moral order in his judgment. Now, it is important then to understand the limits of forgiveness as well as its extent. Sin has both social and religious consequences. And this is why when the Bible deals with forgiveness. It requires restitution in civil society between person and person, and it requires restitution in relationship to God. The restitution in respect to God is made by Jesus Christ, but we are not thereby given the privilege of overlooking the restitution to man. Thus, restitution is central. 
It tells us that social effects are inescapable in sin. There must therefore be social penalties. And when there are social penalties, there is also social stability. It is in a society where you have restitution that you can have stability. Where forgiveness then is something more than an emotional word, but a reality. Therefore, the commandment in the prayer and the petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we saw over a month ago, the word debts has reference to the jubilee. It takes in everything. It takes in sins. It takes in trespasses. It takes in the fact of spiritual bondage. It takes in every spiritual defect. But then our Lord, after giving the model prayer, goes on to say, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He was talking to Jews and Galileans, Israelites, who knew very well the laws of restitution. He didn't have to go into that with them. They knew what he meant when he talked about death. But he used a word which is translated as trespasses, which was very significant, paraptoma. What does it mean? Very literally, according to Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words, it means, and I quote, primarily a false death, a blunder. Literally, a fall beside, used ethically, denotes a trespass, a deviation from uprightness and truth, unquote. Now here we come to an extremely important point. Here is the rub. Here is the problem. It is in this area where we all offend regularly. For most of us, it is not some flagrant sin where restitution is required, but it's our problem. We don't go around stealing or committing adultery or killing or bearing false witness very often. But we do trespass. We do things which manifest stupidity, thoughtlessness, pride, selfishness. And this is where the real problem in human relationships enters in. We're all aware of all the frailties and the faults of people round about. Of course, the problem is to understand how anyone can ever be offended with anyone as lovable, as thoughtful, as noble, as kind, as true, as wonderful, and as humble as we ourselves are. 
But somehow, people sometimes seem to feel that we're out of line. Very hard for us to understand. Very easy for us to see in others. Now, this is what our Lord was talking about when he used the word trespasses. It's not quite a sin in that it isn't an actual act of sin. But it does reveal an element of sin to it. It is a trespass. Our trespasses are most offensive to others and least desirable to ourselves. And we are regularly surrounded by the trespasses of people which we cannot accuse of having violated God's law. Well, trespasses are not out-and-out violations of God's law. But they definitely have behind them thoughtlessness and sin and stupidity. Now, what our Lord does is to zero in on this in no uncertain terms, very significantly. He knew us. He knew, St. John tells us, what was in man. And so he says, If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's very plain, very blunt. And this is where Christians, by and large, fall flat on their faces. Forgiving one another trespasses. My Lord says, God is not going to forgive your trespasses unless you forgive the trespasses of others. It's that clear. God says, I'll take care of the sins. Most of the time, the sins are not against you. They're secondarily against you. They're primarily against me. The church, the state, need to take care of sins. But the trespasses are what you are to deal with. And here is where your faith will reveal itself. Most of the ways in which we irritate one another, most of the problems between husband and wife are not sins with trespasses. And the test whereby God forgives us is, have we forgiven others their trespasses? If not, we are not forgiven. There's no evasion there. There's no way of getting around it saying, well, I've got a right to be angry and unforgiving about these trespasses. If you only knew, God, how much I have to put up with from this and that and the other person. But God says, forgive or you are not forgiven. You see, just as in marriage and in a family, so in the family of God, 
people regularly grate on one another with their set and determined ways. These are minor, but they are very real thoughts. But where love abounds, it does indeed, as St. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, cover a multitude of sins. Solomon in the Old Testament made the same point in Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. And what they were talking about was precisely this area. If we are exploiting the sins or trespasses of others and dwelling on them endlessly, it means clearly that our attitude is sinful also, and that our sin is a hatred of a fellow believer and a desire to stir up strife. God forgives as we forgive the trespasses of others. This poses a question for us. Are we unforgiven? by God because we are unforgiving. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has in Jesus Christ canceled the charges against us and made us new creatures in him. We give thanks unto thee that thy grace has been manifested in and to us. We pray, our Father, that we may manifest this same grace one toward another, forgiving one another our trespasses, that thou mightest ever be forgiving of us. Take away, O Lord, our pride, our stiffness, our stubbornness of heart. Give us thy grace that we may manifest thy love as it has been manifested unto us. Bless us to this purpose we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, amen. We have just a few minutes for Questions. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson? Yes. Yes. Sometimes it has to be verbal. It doesn't always have to be. No. It can be an attitude of grace and love, overlooking. If husbands and wives uh, formally ask forgiveness every time they rubbed each other the wrong way, they'd be saying, please forgive me all day long. So it doesn't always have to be verbal, you see, but it has to be active and sometimes verbal. Yes? What is the background to substituting the word such as for get in the Lord's Prayer? Yes. Uh, the question is, why is it that in many churches the word trespasses is substituted for death. 
The answer to that is that because of these last two verses, in many churches they have assumed that depth is too difficult to understand or they haven't felt that the word conveyed very much to the people. And it doesn't because people are not taught the meaning of the Jubilee. And if they're not taught the meaning of the Jubilee, then the word very definitely doesn't mean much. So from time to time there has been an effort to change it to sins, which again is restrictive, or to trespasses, which limits it to one kind of forgiveness. So our Lord used the right word debtor. And then he specified trespasses because this is the area where we're uh, most likely to look the other way. And he wanted us to get the point. Yes? Yes. The true believer will not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He will not call God evil. Now, sometimes he may be very unhappy and rail against what God has done to him and feel that his lot is not the best, but that is different. Are there any other questions? Yes. Forgiveness uh, is necessary even if it is not requested because if it is just an answer to request, why then it means that it's in a sense uh, required, compelled. Uh, Now, the aspect of restitution can be compelled where it is a civil matter. If someone has indeed robbed or defrauded someone or by accident destroyed their property, then the civil government has a responsibility under God's law to require restitution. Civil forgiveness thus has to be mandatory in any healthy society. But in the personal area, it's different. It has to come from the heart there. But the civil can be required. Yes. Well, the, the Bible gives us the example. Our Lord cast out demons and healed men, caused the blind to see and so on. They said that this was done through satanic power. In other words, they refused to admit that he was of God. And they said he is of Satan. So they saw the supreme good incarnate and called it supremely evil. Now this is totally subverting the whole moral order. And when one does that deliberately, they are uh, beyond forgiveness. They have made evil good and good evil. Our time is just about up. I'd like to remind you that there are notices on the lectern in the back of the Christmas festival, which is this Saturday. So please plan to be there at 6 o'clock for our annual Christmas festival.
All proceeds will go to the Chalcedon Publication Fund. And the Guild has a great many things planned, baked goods, books, gold and silver coins, jewelry, handcraft, gifts, white elephants, some uh, handwork by women, and a great deal more. And I shall give the Christmas message later on in the evening. We urge you to come out and to bring others to our annual Christmas festival this Saturday at the Carillon Room, Glendale Federal Station. The entrance is in the back, and it's, you take the elevator to the Carillon Room in the basement. There's a parking garage next door. Let us bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.